If you would turn to the second of those portions that we were reading from, or Mr. Toms was reading from, John's Gospel, chapter 5. We'll commence there. We will be referring back to that portion in Luke's Gospel as well, and other portions too, but we'll commence in John's Gospel, chapter 5. I do appreciate the, the welcome and also the invitation initially to come over again and to have the opportunity of ministering the Word of God. It's always a joy uh, to come. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, to be asked to come, and I trust the Lord will bless us uh, this afternoon and this evening as we come around the Word of God, and that the Lord will be gracious and open up his Word to our hearts, and may the Word find that resting place in our heart, and may we be taught of the Lord today. And be instructed. Let's just bow together in prayer for uh, a moment and ask the Lord for his help as we come to his, his word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee this afternoon for the Lamb that for sinners was slain. We thank thee for God's dear Lamb. That cry that John the Baptist made, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we thank thee that that sacrifice that Jesus Christ made brought to an end all of those Old Testament sacrifices, for they could never take away sin. And we thank thee that Christ made that once for all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. We thank thee that his sacrifice is all sufficient, that his blood today atones for the soul and pleads for us even now before the throne of God. And our Father, we look to thee to bless our gathering together this afternoon around thy word. We thank thee for this wonderful subject that is before us, and we pray that our meditation upon thy word indeed will be sweet, and that we will know the nearness of the Lord, that we will hear thy voice speaking to our hearts, and that this evening, uh, this afternoon and this evening, we will know the Lord stirring our souls. Lord, we want thy word to make an impact upon us. We do not just want to be hearers of thy word, but Lord, we pray that thy truth will stir our heart and cause us to rejoice in thee, that there is this great hope that lies before us. We thank thee for the child of God that the end is not yet and the best is yet to be. We rejoice, O Lord, in all that lies ahead for those who know Jesus Christ as Saviour. And we pray that thy name will indeed be honoured and exalted among us this day. We do think of uh, the Reverend Macmillan and we pray for him. We thank thee for thy mercy toward him and even thy preserving hand upon him. Lord, we do thank thee and marvel at those circumstances that uh, so uh, were overruling in his life that he was so near to medical attention and even so near to that specialist hospital in Dublin as well. Lord, in all of this we see thy good hand, and we do pray that thou would grant him a healing touch and raise him up. And we know that the cause of God is one that is close to his own heart, and we pray that thou will remember him, remember his wife and the family too at this time, as they would um, spend time, no doubt, down there in Dublin, maybe even journey back and forward from home, and we pray, Lord, that they might know the hand of the Lord upon them also. Bless the congregation there in Armagh as well. And even at this time, as he is laid aside and will be for some time, that uh, they might know the hand of the Lord upon them as well. So, Lord, tarry with us, we ask of thee. Close us in with thyself now, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as has been indicated, my subject... Uh, is the resurrection of the just and I do thank Mr. Toms for reading those portions of scripture and we will be making reference uh, to them there's really just one verse there in Luke uh, but then in John's Gospel 5 here there is a longer portion that we do want uh, to consider the resurrection of the body in general uh, was a doctrine that was unique to the preaching of the apostles in New Testament times. Now there was a belief among the ungodly, among the pagan world, that there was in some sense the continued existence of a, per, a, a person's spirit, and 
That certainly was something that was common, but there certainly was not in the pagan world, in the ungodly world, any consciousness or any uh, consistent belief that there was ever going to be a bodily resurrection. And you see something of that uh, highlighted when Paul went and preached at Mars Hill in the Acts of the Apostles chapter 17. Because it tells us there in verse 32 of Acts 17 that as he preached the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. And the reason why they mocked, the reason why they were, some of them were interested in hearing what Paul had to say on another occasion. And it tells us in that portion as well that the Athenians were given to hearing new things. They wanted to hear new things. And certainly Paul that day was preaching a new thing when he preached the bodily resurrection. For that's what he was emphasizing there when it tells us that he preached the resurrection of the dead. He was preaching the bodily resurrection of the dead. That was something that was new. That was something that was not a common belief or even a common practice uh, to, to teach or to hold to in the world as it was then uh, back in those times. So when the apostles came along, Paul and Peter and the others as well, and preached the bodily resurrection, this was something that was new. This was something that, that was unique. So it is Correct to say that the preaching of the resurrection of the body was something that was very distinctive and was very unique to the preaching of the apostles in the early church. You have another example of that as well when Paul was brought before Agrippa in Acts of the Apostles chapter 26 and in verse 8 Paul said to Agrippa, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? And the reason why, it was a thought, a thing incredible, as I'm saying. There was this common belief, yeah, a person's spirit maybe lived on in some way or other, and even that maybe wasn't clearly defined among uh, the pagan world and the ungodly world as well. But the idea of the body being raised again, that, that was something that was not believed, something that was not accepted. And there again, when Paul uttered those words to Agrippa, because again, evidently Agrippa did think it was a thing incredible. Why would Paul utter those words and, and frame them in the way that he did when he said, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you? Which implies that that's exactly how King Agrippa looked upon the thought of a bodily resurrection. So when the apostles came along preaching the bodily resurrection, uh, following on from the, the Saviour teaching, and we could say as well, it wasn't as if the Saviour introduced something new into the truth of God, because uh, as in all doctrines, the seed of those doctrines are also found in the Old Testament as well, and we think of those words of Job when Job said, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job believed in a bodily resurrection. And all of those great doctrines of the faith have their seed uh, in the Old Testament as well. They might be fuller developed. We believe in progressive revelation and that the further we come through the word of God, the clearer the truth of God becomes. And then in New Testament light, we have the fullness of these doctrines expressed and stated for us. But they are believed in the Old Testament as well. But they were something that was very much a feature of the, pre the, the preaching of the, the apostles. Now there were those in the early church who denied the, the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. You read about those two individuals uh, uh, at Ephesus, Hymenius and Philetus, and they regarded the, the, the resurrection as being spiritual in character and having already taken place. And Paul went on to say in Second Timothy too, because you'll remember that Timothy was sent down by Paul to Ephesus to minister there. And Paul said in Second Timothy 2.18, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So there were those in the early church who were also struggling with the concept of a bodily resurrection. Yes, they, they understood the spirit. Uh, being raised to life but the body that was something altogether different and something strange I think that's possibly the reason why uh, Paul uh, wrote so lengthy a treatise on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 because of this matter and you know as well that in 1 Corinthians 15 not only does he deal with the resurrection but he emphasizes the bodily resurrection particularly that that really is his his theme as he works his way through that particular portion of scripture 
So the bodily resurrection is something that was unique to the preaching of the apostles uh, in the New Testament uh, era. But we're narrowing it down even more uh, this afternoon. And we're wanting to think about not just the resurrection of the body. That's not so much the subject uh, for this afternoon. But the resurrection of the just, which narrows it down somewhat more. And that is what we want to particularly think about and emphasize and that terminology is given there in that uh, portion in Luke uh, chapter 14 that that was read by Mr. Tom just the very last verse uh, it says and thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just so the Lord Jesus uses this terminology the resurrection of the just and we'll be saying a little more about that as we work our way through uh, the message this this afternoon. But the Lord there uses this terminology. So we're thinking about this this, uh, resurrection of the just that the Lord Jesus is making reference to there. The first thing I want you to consider here as we consider this topic uh, this afternoon is the single cause of this resurrection. I think it's important that we start off acknowledging the place of the Saviour. And giving him the preeminent place. He ought always to have the preeminent place. He ought always to have the first place. And in there reading through that portion in John chapter 5. And also in John chapter 6 as well. There is I think a necessity on our part. To acknowledge the position that the saviour has in all of this. And to set him out as the cause of this resurrection. Because there has to be a cause. If, if the just are going to be resurrected in the fashion that they are, in the way that they are, and even unto the purpose that they are going to be resurrected in the scriptures, there has to be a cause. There has to be a cause. In fact, there, there's a cause as to why all men are going to be raised from the dead. But there's a particular cause why the resurrection of the just will take place. And if you have that portion there, John 5, opened in front of you, I want you to notice verses 21 and 22, uh, just for a moment. It says, For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And that sets down before us some very important points with regards to the Lord Jesus and underscores for us the cause of, of the resurrection as a concept, but also particularly when we come to think about the resurrection of, of the just. Because what those two verses are emphasizing there is both the Saviour's judicial authority and his quickening power. Those are the two points that are brought out there off those two verses. His judicial authority, it tells us the Father judgeth no man but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So because this judicial authority belongs unto the Saviour, then there is going to come that day, as we know, when all the dead are going to stand before him. When wherever the dead are buried, and whatever form their bodies are in at that particular time. All of the dead that we know are going to be raised and they are going to ultimately come before the Lord and they're going to stand before him and as we know he's the judge of the quick and the dead. And that is going to take place because of what is taught there in John chapter 5 and verse 22 that all judgment has been committed unto the Son. So there is this judicial authority that belongs to Jesus Christ because of who he is and what he has done that will eventually bring all men and all women to stand before him someday. And then there is this other point about him not only being the judge of all men, but also then the one who quickeneth whom he will as well. And that brings us on, you see, to think about the redeemed. Not just thinking about the the resurrection and how that all are going to stand before God eventually, but there the emphasis is on his quickening power. Because surely that has to refer to the redeemed who are quickened. It has to refer to to those who are born of the Spirit of God. Because the Lord has manifested his quickening power already and he quickens whom he will. And we often take that terminology to refer to the sovereignty of God in salvation. The Lord quickens whom he wills. 
He is pleased to save a people out of the world and he will save that people. That people have been given to him in eternity past and they must and they shall be saved because of the quickening power that is in Jesus Christ to, to raise dead souls unto to life. And the resurrection of the just will take place because of the quickening power that belongs to the Lord. And the point to, to emphasize, I, I think, in regards to this is that Jesus Christ has redeemed the body of believers as well as the soul of believers. He has redeemed the body of believers as well as the soul of believers. Sometimes we, we, we are, are inclined or drawn to emphasize the redemption of the soul. But it's also important to underscore in scripture that the redemption of the body is something that the, the scripture teaches and it's something that Christ died at the cross to accomplish, the resurrection of the body. I, I have preached on it sometimes back in my own congregation at, at funeral services, particularly when maybe somebody has you know, had an illness that has devastated their body or somebody elderly maybe has dementia or Alzheimer's and they, they have just their family have witnessed know a decline over a long period of time and maybe at the end they don't even know them and that that happened recently with uh, um, just a man and a wife in in our congregation his his wife didn't even know him at the end and it broke his heart and many a time uh, I would have picked him up to take him down to visit his wife he he didn't have any means of transport and it was a a recurring theme all many times in in conversation he would go back to the point that his wife didn't recognize him and it broke his heart and the the Lord directed me to to preach on that, that subject the fact that Christ has redeemed the body as well as redeeming the soul The Lord is not going to give Satan and sin one particle of the people of God. Not one particle of the people of God will be able to belong to Satan and to sin. There is no way in which Satan and sin is going to reign over any part of the people of God. And as you know, the 1 Corinthians 15 teaches that death is the last great enemy that's going to be defeated. And and in defeating that that great enemy, there is not going to be one part of the people of God left behind. And when you think about some of those statements that the Lord uh, makes in in the word of God, it, it brings us to the conclusion that the Lord has purchased us body, soul and spirit. He's purchased us body, soul and spirit. That's what Christ died at the cross to do, to purchase his people, not only to redeem their soul, and purchase their soul and redeem that back onto himself, but also with respect to their body. First uh, Thessalonians five emphasizes the fact that he's redeeming or that he's sanctifying us in body, soul, and spirit. At verse it reads, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's redeemed us, he's purchased us body, soul and spirit, he's sanctifying us body, soul and spirit and therefore we must come to that ultimate conclusion, he's going to glorify us body, soul and spirit. So why is there a redemption of the body? Why is it something that was unique in the preaching of the apostles in the sense that the wider world did not know it or recognized it and even mocked at the idea of it? It's because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. It is because of his quickening power and he's not going to only raise the soul and save the soul but he's also going to raise the body and bring it unto himself as well there is an interesting verse if you would turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that does, does bear this out in fact it's only explainable if we understand it in this particular light that it's referring to the redemption of the body it's It's the last verse but one there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. And it says, But of him are we in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now those four statements there, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption, are in a logical order. Christ is made unto us wisdom. And there is the thought of us coming to a knowledge of the Lord, a knowledge of ourselves and our sinfulness and our need of Christ as Saviour. 
we, we, must, we must come to that understanding and that will only come about by the wisdom of God. We'll never understand our need ourselves and even if we sensed in some way that we were sinners, we'd never know how to save ourselves or how anyone else could save us. The word of God must enlighten us. So Christ has made unto us wisdom. Then he's made unto us righteousness is the second one. And there's the thought about imputed righteousness that he, that he imputes to a sinner's account. His own righteousness is given to us. That gives us a standing before God and an acceptance before God. Then sanctification follows on. And when the Lord has saved an individual and regenerated them, imputed his righteousness to them, he's going to sanctify them. But then the last one is redemption. And sometimes people reading that verse and they think, well, how, where, how does that fit in the logical order? Does redemption not go back? Are we not thinking there about what Christ did upon the cross? No, Paul has got in mind there the redemption of the body. He's thinking about the great culmination of all of these things, the great conclusion that there is coming one day when all of these things will have worked their way through in fullness and in completion, and at the very end there is going to be the redemption of the body. He makes reference to that in Romans 8.23 as well, where he speaks about the, the groaning within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The redemption of the body. So Christ has redeemed us, body, soul and spirit. Therefore, there has to be a resurrection of the just. The body cannot be left in the grave under the dominion of Satan and sin. It must come forth victorious and glorious because of what Christ has done for his people in redeeming them. And therefore, he cannot ever leave the body of any saint behind. And you know your history and church history, even what they did to Wycliffe uh, when... They dug up his bones and burnt them and then scattered the ashes in the river Swift and they thought that somehow they could even disperse uh, his, his last remains that there would be no resurrection of John Whitwell. Well, it doesn't matter where or whatever has happened to a particular body. Christ is not going to leave the body of any child of God under the dominion of death and under the power of the grave. He cannot. He cannot. It is part of his redeeming work. It is part of his quickening power. To raise believers up in the resurrection of the just. The Saviour's own uh, experience, his, his own life is a, is a pattern for all of, of believers. In 1 Corinthians 15, that lengthy chapter on the resurrection, Paul sets out Christ as the first fruits of them that slept. Verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And also verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Well, what is the pattern then with regards to Jesus Christ? If Christ is the first fruits, he's the pattern. And the first fruits are a reference to uh, what happened in Old Testament times among the Israelites when they would cut a, 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 a swing in the sickle and cut down the, the first sheaf. <clears throat> and they would take the first sheaf before the Lord and they would wave it. It was going to be the wave offering. But it was the pledge of the full harvest that was to follow. They were acknowledging the Lord's goodness right at the very beginning of the harvest time of the Lord's faithfulness to them and bringing round another harvest season. And here's the pledge of all the harvest that was going to follow. And here's the terminology that Paul uses of Christ. He's the first fruits of them that slept. In other words, he is the pattern. Well, did Christ not have a bodily resurrection? Is that not one of the fundamentals of the faith that we hold to? Christ's bodily resurrection. Not just that he had a resurrection, but we believe that he had a bodily resurrection. He, raised, uh, he was raised bodily from the grave. Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen, were the words of the angel, uh, the angels that guarded the tomb. And when Mary and Peter and John came to the empty tomb, it tells us that they found the grave clothes neatly arranged. But the one around whom those grave clothes were wrapped was not there. He is not here, is the words of the angel. He is not here. So Christ had a bodily resurrection. Therefore, 
Because Christ is the pattern for all of us, then every child of God also is going to have a bodily resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection of the just in body because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And I think that is emphasized here in those points that we find in in uh, John's Gospel, chapter f- uh, 5. And therefore, it's right and proper that we start off highlighting that, that single cause. There is no other reason why any of us will ever be a partaker in the resurrection of the just other than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's no other reason for it. There's no other cause other than what Christ has done. And that's why we need to be in Christ and why we need to know him as our saviour and have his imputed righteousness so that we will be among those that will that day be resurrected in what is known as the resurrection of the just. Now that brings me on then to the second thing that I want to set before you <clears throat> and it's this, the double distinction that we want to notice in this, this resurrection because the word of God as you read through these matters and particularly seek to consider this particular subject does make a double distinction in this matter of the the resurrection of the just. There's first of all the most obvious one that you have there in the very term that we are thinking about uh, this afternoon, the resurrection of the just. You have the, the distinction as to designation. There's only two groups of people in the eyes of the Lord. There's the just and the unjust. doesn't matter what other term we might use to differentiate between different people in the world or among ourselves whether it's ethnic background or whether it's nationality language there's a host of other things that can be used in an earthly sense and is used in an earthly sense to distinguish between one group of individuals and another group of individuals but before God there's just the just and the unjust There's the just and the unjust. And it's interesting that when we come to think about the resurrection, that's the terminology that is used in the word of God. That, for example, Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, the Savior there is speaking. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. So there's the Lord thinking about his, his general uh, blessings that he bestows upon the world. And he distinguishes the men and women in the world under those terms. There's the evil and the good. There's the just and the unjust. Those are the two types of individuals that there are in, in the world. Now we know that Paul does emphasize that there's going to be a resurrection of both as we've already been highlighting because of Christ's judicial authority all are going to be raised all of mankind are going to be raised and brought before uh, the Lord eventually and in Acts 24 15 uh, Paul uses that terminology speaking about himself he says and of hope toward God which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So again, you have that differentiation there in those terms. There's those designated the just, there's those that are designated the unjust. All are going to be raised, as we know. All are going to appear eventually and ultimately before God. But there is this, there's this distinction that is made. There's those who are designated the just. There's those who are designated the unjust. What we're particularly thinking about this afternoon is the resurrection of the just. So there's, there's a designation here to notice when we come to think about this particular subject. And we ought not to miss it. We're thinking about that which belongs only to the just. And we know no man or woman is just of themselves. We are unjust by nature. We can only be just if we have been justified by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there in John chapter 5 and in verse 25, there is mention made here of this. Mr. Tom's made reference to these words just in the reading. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And here's, here's the thought of the Lord raising the dead uh, and ultimately bringing them before him. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. 
So we're here back to think about the just and the unjust. He's going to raise all of the dead and bring them before him. But in thinking about that and and acknowledging the statements that are made, we're never to miss this, this distinction that there is here between the just and the unjust. That's an absolutely vital distinction. And we need to make sure that we are those that are found among the just. Because of the difference that there's going to be, and we're going to highlight some of this, uh, some of that difference as we progress here in uh, a few moments. It's absolutely essential that men and women make sure that they are found among the just, and that they are not found among the unjust. And what an awful day it will be to be found among the unjust, because. It will be a, a, a being raised to meet a judge. It will not be being raised to meet a saviour. The unsaved, the unconverted, the unjust are going to be raised to meet their judge. And what an awful end that will be. So there is a, there is a distinction that we need to acknowledge in regards to that particular point. But then the, the other uh, distinction we need to make is regard to timing. And that brings us to think not of a term that is found in uh, the, the gospel so much as in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, but one that we never, uh, nevertheless need to bring into this particular time, and that's the reference in Revelation 20 to the first resurrection. There is, there is a distinction here to note with regards to time. So we've thought about the distinction with regards to the designation of the just and the unjust and how important it is to maintain that and acknowledge it. And it ought to sober up many as an individual as they think about that and, and ponder these subjects. Am I among the just or am I among the unjust? But here then is the second of these matters that we need to make a distinction in. And that is the timing of it. It naturally follows that if we have a first resurrection, there has to be a second resurrection. In exactly the same way as we have a first advent, and that of necessity means there must be a second advent. If you use the terminology... Of a first, there also must be a second, or else the, the, the phrase to use the term first is, is redundant. There must be the, a second one that follows on. And as we know, there is a first resurrection that is spoken of there in Revelation chapter 20, and verses 4, 5, and 6 of that particular chapter of the Word of God, where John said, I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads, nor in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until... The thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So there's mention made here of the first resurrection. And also then there in verse 6 there is this uh, emphasis. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in this first resurrection. So we've thought about the importance of being among the just in thinking of the distinction between the, the, the just and the unjust. Well, there again in Revelation chapter 20, there's the emphasis about making sure you're among the first, uh, taking part in the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the individual who has part in the first resurrection. So again, the scripture is emphasizing both of these things. And as I look upon them, there's, there's an emphasis here. There's a distinction that is being made that I think we ought to notice and draw attention to. We need to make sure that we're among the just. When we think about the just and the unjust, we need to make sure that we're those that are raised in the first resurrection. And not with the rest of the dead. That will follow on after. Now as we know, there is... Uh, great debate about uh, the timing of the resurrection and the first resurrection. And there are those who speak about a general resurrection, and they try to make that term to refer to the resurrection of everybody at the same time. Well, that's an interesting concept just to stop and consider for a, a moment. Uh, 
or two. Because being, being a, a free Presbyterian, the Westminster Confession is part of our subordinate standards of our denomination. And we, we sign the Confession of Faith as a confession of our own faith at our ordination and, at, at, and any subsequent installations when you move a congregation. Uh, every time a minister moves congregation, he signs the confession again as a confession of his own faith. So the term is found in the confession, a general resurrection. And as you know, there's those who take that term and say, oh, there you are, that there argues against what you're saying, that there's a division here between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And this thought that the, resu- the first resurrection comes at the start of the, the millennial kingdom when the saviour returns and the, the, the resurrection of the rest of the dead comes at the end of the millennial uh, reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can, that belie- how can you believe that when you're supposed to hold to a general resurrection? Now that would be a serious charge to sign something and then not to believe it if that's how you're to understand it. To put your name to something like a general resurrection and then turn around and say, well, um, I don't believe it. But if we just stop for a moment and, and ponder this, this point for a moment. You see, what even those who argue for only one resurrection must accept that both the just and the unjust do not rise from the dead at the same time. That's an indisputable point of scripture because we have it very clearly in first Thessalonians four sixteen when it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. The dead in Christ shall rise first. The unjust do not rise. Even those that take that term general resurrection to refer to the resurrection of everybody when the Lord comes the second time, they have to acknowledge that there has to be some difference, there has to be some distinction as to time, because First Thessalonians 4 verse 16 makes it very clear, the dead in Christ rise first. So the word of God is very clear there, that the dead do not rise at the same time. So therefore the discussion is not whether there is any time between the resurrection of the just and the unjust. The, the discussion is how much time. Is there between the resurrection of the just and the unjust? The point has to be already conceded. There is a, there is a difference in time. Because of what Thess, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4.16 says. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Therefore there has to be a difference in timing. So it comes down to this. It comes down to a discussion as to how much time there is between the first resurrection and the second resurrection. Between the resurrection of the just at the coming of the saviour and the resurrection of the rest of the dead at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's what the argument comes down to. They must already concede there has to be some space. Even... even for those that believe and argue that there's a resurrection of everybody at the coming of the Lord, they have to at least acknowledge there is, there is some time difference, whether it's short. I've never really heard or read anyone who has addressed that point specifically and stated how they understand this uh, to, to take place, but it, it has to be inferred, at least from what they say. There has to be some period of time between the resurrection of those that are redeemed as soon as the Lord appears in, in the heavens, as we know, because the dead that are raised go up to meet him and then come down with the Lord to the earth. So there has to be at least some uh, difference as in time as to when the dead in Christ rise and when the rest of the dead are raised. So the point then is how much time? They've already had to concede the point that there cannot be a a raising of all of the dead at exactly the one and the same time. But even when you think about that term general, within that um, concept general resurrection, it has to be, well it's an English term, it's not a term that is found in, in the scriptures. It's an English word, so therefore you need to look at it from uh, an English meaning point of view. But the term general does not have any reference to time. It is not a word that is used to refer to time. The, The word general is a term that is used to refer to extent or to the reach of something. For example, we talk about a general election in distinction to local elections. I, I think you are having, or 
Some over here are having local elections, is it, later on in the month of May. We, we don't. We're not having any. Uh, there's no elections in Northern Ireland over at this particular time this year at all. Uh, I think our local elections are coming uh, next year. But we make the distinction between a general election and a local election, and we know what that term means. But we're not using the term in any way to refer to time. We're referring to the reach, to the extent of that, because sometimes local elections, there's only some places that have local elections and other places uh, don't. Whereas if it's a general election, that refers then to all of the country going to the polls and having a general election. And again, there's other other usages of that, that word. For example, we talk about general knowledge. We talk about a general manager. And again, in all of those times you use that word, there is no mention or no reference to time in it. And I, I'm sure there's many other uses of the term general as well, but I can't think of anyone whereby you'd have to come to the conclusion that's a reference to time. That word general is used referring to time. It's only referring to the fact that it means all. It refers to reach, it refers to extent. Well, in that sense, I believe in a a general resurrection. I believe that all of the dead are going to be raised ultimately. I believe that they're going to be raised. I believe the Bible teaches they're going to be raised at different times. But I believe that all are going to be raised. The dead in Christ are going to be raised at the coming of of the Saviour. The rest of the dead are going to be raised later on. But all are going to be raised. Going back to the points that we've already made there in John 5 about Christ's judicial authority. That he will call all before him because of who he is. So the term general resurrection does not in any way argue against the fact that there is a time Uh, difference, a space of time between the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. The first resurrection and then the resurrection of the rest of the dead. Turn away back over please if you would to Daniel chapter 12 because Daniel makes a very interesting point here uh, with regards to this very issue about the timing that there is in the resurrection of the dead. Daniel chapter 12, and we'll read from verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of, of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And then here are the words that I want you to particularly think. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Many of them that sleep in the dust shall awake. The point is made here that Daniel prophesies either a divided resurrection or a partial resurrection. But he certainly does not prophesy a general resurrection in the sense that everybody is being raised at the same time. There's a, there's a Hebrew form of expression here in, in that that uh, word, that verse it's just found a few places in in the word of god it's found over in the um the the life of jacob and it's a way of a hebrew way of expressing uh those and these referring to two different groups of individuals and that's what appears here in uh, this verse in fact it's the same hebrew word repeated uh, twice over at the start of each clause So it makes the general statement there in verse 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Not all. You can't turn many into all. If you talk about many individuals, you're not talking about every individual. That's impossible. The language does not uh, enable you to, to use it in such a way as to say, oh, the Bible here uses the word many, but it means all. It means everybody. It can't do that. Daniel says many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So he's, Daniel is referring here to a partial resurrection, to a divided resurrection. 
There's only some, there's many who are raised at this particular time. And then he brings in these two uh, clauses with this same uh, Hebrew word starting off each of these. Now, our English Bible translates it with the word some. Some to everlasting life and some to, ever, uh, to shame and everlasting contempt. They're, they're still emphasizing the particular point that, that is there. That there's two groups of individuals here. Daniel's just referring in the opening statement to one group. He's referring to many who are going to be raised, who sleep in the dust of the earth. And those that he's referring to there particularly, and he's tying it in with his own people there in uh, the, the verse that has gone before. But he's bringing in this idea that there's these, the many who are going to be raised, and they're those that are being raised to everlasting life. And then the others? What about the rest of Mankind, Because he's only been speaking about the many. What about the rest? Then he brings in the second uh, statement. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. And in, in the, the, the original language there. In the fo- way that that verse is, is formed. It is emphasizing far more clearly. Maybe than just what it is brought out there in, in our, our English Bibles. Because there's, there's a particular... Uh, set of terms there as I say that are found in the Hebrew language that does emphasize two groups of individuals and the the, the reference over in in Jacob's life is to the years that he spent in in, uh, Pandanaram and it's dividing up the years in in Jacob's life it speaks about these and they and it's referring to two different uh, periods of time so over there in in Uh, in Jacob's life it very clearly is distinguishing two different groups as to uh, the time that he was there in Pandan Aram with with Laban and and, uh, he he laboured for as you know for those years for Rachel and then uh, he he was married to Leah and had to labour again uh, for Rachel and then he he laboured for for uh, the flocks and the herds that he that he had, but the Bible uses these these terms, these words, to distinguish between two different groups, and that's the same word that lies here at the the back of this statement in Daniel twelve and verse two, emphasizing there is a difference here. And however else you, whatever else you may think, whatever other arguments people brings forward, you come to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 and you cannot there work into those verses and unto those words in any way can you ever work in the thought everybody rises from the dead at the same time. That cannot happen. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So there's that, there's that twofold distinction that needs to be noticed. Very quickly, one final point I want you to consider, and that's the triple purpose of this resurrection. We've thought about the single cause, we've thought about the double distinction. I want you to think about the triple purpose. What is the purpose of the resurrection when the Lord raises his people at this particular time? Well, if you come back here to the Saviour's teaching, because that's what we're particularly emphasizing uh, in this uh, series of Meetings. It's the Saviour's teaching. Well, if you look at John 5.29, the first purpose that we can say with regards to the resurrection of the just, that it is a resurrection unto life. John 5 verse 29. And it's, it says about those that will come forth out of the grave and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So we're thinking here about the first Category: They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. So here's how it is, it is declared and described here. And it, and it reminds us of the purpose. Why is the Lord raising his people when he comes? Why is there the first resurrection when he appears in glory and great power? It's because his people are going to be partakers of that life that is in him. And when we speak there about, or when the Bible speaks about the resurrection of life and we use that terminology, we're thinking about a resurrection unto everlasting life. We're thinking about a resurrection unto eternal glory. We're thinking about a resurrection unto eternal happiness. You can pursue all of those thoughts through the word of God. But that's what it's referring to when it speaks there in John 5.29 about the resurrection of life. Unto everlasting life, unto eternal glory, unto 
endless happiness. And you can think about what the the scripture says. We're we're not going to pursue this because it's other verses outside of the Saviour's direct teaching. But um, I'll just mention these points for the, the sake of completeness. There's the thought about putting off corruption and rising to immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of of that great chapter, we have those verses speak about putting off corruption, putting on incorruption, putting off mortality, putting on immortality. That's what the resurrection of life is going to be. And what, what a day that will be when the Christian puts on incorruption and puts on immortality. We, we, we know nothing but corruption and, immor- and, and mortality. Everything in, in life is, is centered around the fact that we are uh, beings that are mortal. We have been corrupted by sin. We are frail, mortal, sick, dying creatures. Everything in the world comes back to that point. But what must it be to reach that day when we put off corruption and we put off mortality? What a glorious day that will be. There's also uh, a rising in life to perfect conformity to Christ. Philippians 3.21 emphasizes that. We will be like Christ. We will be, have a body fashioned like unto Christ. Glorious body. And again, what a glorious day that will be. And you can develop that thought uh, yourself in your own uh, mind and in your own study of the word of God. What must it be to be conformed to Christ? Is that not what the Christian is longing for in this world now? Is that not what sanctification is? It is that bringing us into more and more conformity to Jesus Christ. And yet we know that as we are in the body, that will never be completed until that day when Christ appears. There's a rising to life, to a life of constant communion with Christ. First Thessalonians 4.17 emphasizes the thought, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And again, what a glorious thought that will be. We'll be with the Lord, never depart. We'll be with the Lord, never in any way to lose his company or to lose the consciousness of his presence. It'll never happen. It's a resurrection of life. This is the purpose that the Lord has for his people when he raises them up in the resurrection of the just. So it's called the resurrection of life. And then if you go back to Luke chapter 14 verse 14 or just think about the words that we've been mentioning so often there and it's a resurrection unto recompense. It says there thou shalt be blessed for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. So the resurrection of the just is a day of recompense. It's a recompense for believers. It's a recompense for those who have stood with Christ In the days of his humiliation and in the days of his rejection, who have honoured the Saviour, followed the Saviour, served the Saviour, there's coming a day of recompense. The Lord will remember his people. And as they have borne reproach for Christ during all those years of rejection by the world at large, there comes a day of recompense. The Lord, as we know, is no man's debtor. The Lord honours them that honours him. And if we live for Christ and serve Christ, it's not that we do it to get a recompense. We would do it if there is no recompense, for we do it out of love and devotion to Jesus Christ. But there is a day of recompense that is coming. The Lord takes notice of the life and the witness and the service of his people. And on that day of the resurrection of the just, there is going to be a recompense that is made. The Bible teaches us that the works of the saints follow them. They don't go before us, but they follow. That verse in Revelation speaks about the works of the saints to follow us. And if they follow us because there's going to be a day of recompense that will come about. And in the context there of Luke 14, there, there's the, the, the particular thought about you no know, acts of benevolence uh, towards uh, needy individuals, needy members of the body of Christ that have been done in faith, that have been done out of a principle of love to Christ, that have been done out of, done with a view to the glory of God, they'll all be recompensed. There's a day of reward. There is a day of recompense. J.C. Ryle has a wonderful article, if I remember right, um, some few years ago now reading it, but I think it from J.C. Uh, Ryle about degrees of reward in heaven. 
the degrees of reward in heaven. And it's well worth reading because it ties in with this thought. There's a day of recompense that is coming. Well, do we not want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant? Is that not what we long for? We want to reach that day and be raised up to meet Christ and to hear those words, well done. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, the Lord's not looking for successful servants because success is his, is his work. What he's looking for from us is faithful servants. We must be faithful. We must be faithful to the Lord. And may the Lord give us grace to, to be faithful to him. Even in a, an evil day, it's harder to be faithful in an evil day in many respects. If all is going well and we're on top of the world and the work of God is on the top of the world, well, it has its challenges and snares as well, but in some ways it's, it's, it's a little easier to be faithful. But what about an evil day? What about a day when the tide has gone out, like, the day, like this day in our nation? When there's little interest and great apathy uh, and even uh, the love of many waxing cold among the people of God, is it not harder to be faithful in such times? Is, it not, is the inclination there not just to go with the crowd? Let's, let's, let's loosen some of the, the, the bands that we, that we, we are accused of, or that restrict us and are holding us back and so on. As you know that there's many in, in the church of Jesus Christ and that's what they, they, they argue and lobby for. They want a loosening of these things. Let's, let's have a little of the world among the church. Let's make ourselves a little more accommodating. Is it not more difficult to stand in, in such times as that? The Lord is looking for faithful servants. And I finish off with this thought. It's, it's obviously it's a resurrection to reign with Christ. It's a resurrection to life as we've been noticing. It's a resurrection to recompense. It's a resurrection to reign with Christ. That brings us into chapter 6. And I'll just mention these, these verses and we're going to conclude for time is, is running on. But beginning there at verse 39 of chapter 6. There, there is the thought of the last day that is mentioned. And uh, John 6.39 And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And here's again the resurrection of the just that is in view. And, and the thought here is of this resurrection. Uh, we've been thinking about the other elements of it, but we're particularly emphasizing here this resurrection to... To reign with Christ. And that, that uh, raising of us up at the last day, it's mentioned in verse 40, it's mentioned in verse 44, and it's mentioned in verse 54 as well. And we'll just not take the time to read all of those verses. But you'll find that phrase in all of those verses, 39, 40, 44, and 54, about the reference to being raised up at the last day. And it is a, ra- a, a, a raising us up to reign with Christ. I started off by saying that Christ is the cause, the sole cause, the single cause of our resurrection and that our lives are patterned on his. Well, how, how do we view Jesus Christ? How does the scripture set him before us? Does the scripture not set him forth as the great Melchizedek, the kingly priest? Is that not how the scripture sets Christ out? In his glory for us as a believer, we look upon him as the kingly priest, as our great Melchizedek. Well, God's people are raised to be kings and priests unto God, the Bible tells us. There's those verses in Revelation we've already referred to about uh, being raised to reign with him. But there's also mention made in those verses that it says, Blessed and holy, uh, verse 6, is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death is no power, and they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. There, there's the thought, kings and priests with Christ. That, that's how it is with Christ. That's the pattern for every believer, is Jesus Christ. How it has gone with Jesus Christ, it will go with every saint. And as he has been raised in this fashion, and he's the great Melchizedek who's coming to reign, so it will be with his people. It's a resurrection to reign 
with him. And may we indeed look forward, therefore, with, with anticipation and with great joy to that day. I finish off with one verse of scripture, and it's Revelation 3.21, when the Lord was delivering those messages to the seven churches. And as you know, there's always a reference to the overcomer in all the seven messages. And the one that is given to us there in Revelation 3.21, it says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. That's where Christ is at the moment. He's seated at his Father's right hand on his Father's throne. But he tells us there's coming a day when he's going to sit on his throne because uh, Luke's Gospel chapter 1 tells us the promise was given to the Messiah that he would be given the throne of his father David. And there's coming a day when Christ is going to sit on the throne of his father David. And what does it say about the people of God? To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. A resurrection to reign with Jesus Christ. And may we rejoice in all that Christ has done for us and will yet do for us and that which lies ahead of us in, in days to come. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts for his name's sake. We'll hand back to Mr. Toms for the